I have a question for you, and I want you to raise your hand in just a moment. When I ask the question, it's not rhetorical in this case. I will, I will have some following rhetorical questions. The first question is not rhetorical. So the first question I have for you, how many of you believe that Abraham Lincoln existed? Let me see your hands. Most of us in this room would have no issue with that question of Abraham Lincoln existed. Virtually everyone in the room, that not only did he exist, but he had a dramatic impact on the direction of American history. Now, he's known as the President of the United States who led a divided country through a civil war that was eventually won by the North and the abolitionist Republican Party. And a monument in his honor has been placed in Washington, D.C. to commemorate his victory and influence. If you ever go there, you will see one of the dominant structures of that place is his monument. Now, let me ask you another question. This is rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand on this one, okay? Why do you believe that Abraham Lincoln existed? Now, the answer might seem obvious. I mean, who doesn't know what about Abraham Lincoln and his role in history? It's in every American history book, and I'm assuming Canadians learn of him, too. I'm guessing that you know about who he is. And that brings up, then, another other important question. How do we know any historic person or event actually happened? How do we know? To answer the question, most of us would cite historical documents. We might look at primary sources that include newspaper, magazine articles of eyewitnesses. We might cite the fact that the times and the places for events surrounding Lincoln are consistent with the articles and what we know of those particular places. You can still go to Gettysburg and see where he delivered his famous Gettysburg Address. You can see the black slavery that once existed has now been abolished after his time as president. As a boy who grew up in Virginia, we had a house not far from Virginia Beach in Landaways. We had a house that was built in 1774 that we lived in. My mom didn't like it. It was kind of drafty and old. So my dad was building a new one at the time, but my point there being, it was a very, very old house, and in the backyard, there were some sheds that I later found out had been slave homes, shacks, they called them. The point is, it seems pretty clear that Abraham Lincoln existed, and the evidence seems rather convincing. Now let me ask you another equally, or I would say even far more important question, and this is not rhetorical, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ existed? Okay, most everybody in this room believes that. Now, if you were to go out into the public community or in the universities, you may not get that kind of a support and that kind of consensus. There are many critics who question if he ever really existed and think he was conjured up by a naive or incompetent, potentially corrupt church. And I hear that theory all the time. So the question is of equal importance. Is it by mere blind faith, or is it something more that we believe in Jesus Christ? Something more objective and something more substantial than simply, oh, I believe in fairy tales, and I believe in Santa Claus, and I believe in spaghetti monsters in the sky. This morning, I want to argue that we know that Jesus existed in the same way that we know that Abraham Lincoln existed. The only real difference is that our primary sources are older. But the fact is that because it's ancient does not mean that we do not have good historical evidence for his existence. And that his existence left a dramatic impact on history. Even to this day, over 2,000 years later, people still worship him and celebrate him. Just because something is old doesn't mean it's questionable or unreliable. So this morning, I want us to respond to the question, why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? Because many of the critics say, well, it's outdated, science has proven it wrong, it's been superseded as old, primitive ideologies. Why believe the Bible? 
Why do we believe the Word of God? And I want to see that many of the critics of the Bible and its claims, they approach it with a bias, a very strong bias that is shaped by a modern secular myth that rejects outright any claim of God or the supernatural. So when they read that Jesus is God, they reject it regardless of the historical evidence. So when they face the historical evidence, they have to find ways to discredit it. So let's return to the question. And we're going to look at three responses. Why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? So I want to start, first of all, with to note that most modern critics of the Bible are biased toward a secular myth. And I'm purposely using the word myth. They believe that history is on this ongoing arch toward progress. This is the dominant meta-narrative preached in our secular universities and the public institution. The narrative goes like this. Before the Enlightenment, people believed in primitive and superstition beliefs like the supernatural and the flat earth and religion. But since the Enlightenment, things have progressed toward it on a continuous arc that will continue to avoid past religious superstitions. This is the position of an influential author named Steven Pinker in his book, Enlightenment Now. He argues that the Enlightenment values of reason, science, and humanism have brought progress and show our, shows our progress with data that health, prosperity, safety, peace, and happiness have tended to rise worldwide. And I read his book, and I read the data, and I don't not even dispute of the data and what it says. But here is part of my argument with regard to his book. He gives no credit to God whatsoever or to the influence of Christianity that brought those values about that led to that. And like most who share this view, they believe that Christianity and religion in general has been a hindrance to human achievement, not toward its advancement. This philosophy was dominant in the early part of the last century and disappeared for a period of time and is now resurging again. It even influenced Charles Darwin who believed that the evolution of life progressed from a continuous movement from a simple single-cell uh, amoeba-type being and it evolved and changed through mutation and natural selection over time and over time and over a long enough time, and then eventually man evolved. This continual progression of what took place, this idea of progress, everything progressing, was a dominant position of the era. It was the view of Karl Marx, who founded communism, and, uh, and that of Stalin. They believed that culture would evolve just as life had evolved. They took the Darwinian view of evolution, they applied it to politics and to culture and believed that man would continue to progress politically. But then three things happened that kind of put that thinking on hold for a while. It's called World War I, World War II, the rise of Hitler, and of the Soviet Union. And we saw the evil and corruption that said, whoa, wait a minute, something bad still going on here. We have saw in those things the evil that man is capable of. And while those things are now history, there is no reason whatsoever to believe that we will not face such things again in the future and we'll go right back to that. I don't believe in this progressive arc of history. Yes, some wonderful things have happened, but I think the case for that is as much Christian influence as anything else, and I'll make that case later. But they also believe that a freer, more tolerant world will escort mankind into a kind of a modern utopia. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he popularized this view and believed in the perfectibility of man. 
He said man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. He believed that man was more naturally good and if released from the bonds that shackled him and the burdens imposed by Western civilization, he could retain his natural virtue. If we just eliminate Western civilization, we deconstruct everything, man's natural goodness will be able to come out and the world will be a better place. But the evidence of Scripture shows it's not the case. Sin dominates wherever we go, and we see it in things like 911. We see it in the school shootings that have been happening over the last 10 years. We see it in the totalitarianism of China, which is seeking to suppress any ideology that does not fit their own. They also teach that science and the Bible are in conflict and the science is one. But in his book, The Soul of Science, the well-known microbiologist Charles Thaxon and Nancy Piercy shows that there was never a conflict between science and faith and that science has not surplanted faith. He shows the fact that all the men who founded science were believers virtually without exception. And I'll quote those later. The early founders of, of science were all Christian virtually without exception. This worldview about the secular myth, they also believe that the Bible is a primitive, outdated relic written by ignorant, incompetent men. They appeal to other books claiming to be scripture. They would appeal like to the, what are called the Gnostic Gospels, or they are also called what is called the pseudographia, the false writings. Critics often cite Gnostic Gospels that came three to four centuries after the Bible and describe a different gospel than one find in the New Testament. And they act as though somehow the church would try to suppress those over all the years and not getting them out. And I want to say they've never been suppressed. Every time I see this new book, this new discovery, this new Gnostic gospel has been revealed, I probably read it in seminary. We had to read that stuff in seminary to understand the heresy that was developing called Gnosticism within the church. It was a very dominant heresy. And there is a, a lot of books, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all these late books. They're not secrets. They were not suppressed. We've known about them for years. The reason we didn't accept them is because, first of all, they always were three to four centuries later. They claimed to be written by apostles, and that's not possible because it wouldn't have happened. The fact is, they're rejected because they clearly do not fit what the evidence would show to be truth. Secondly, they believe it's been corrupted, that the Bible has been corrupted due to the, the faith bias of the early church. This is a very dominant view. They argue that over time, Christian leaders rewrote the message to give them greater control and to promote it because they wanted the people to believe this naive, supernatural stuff that they believe. And the Bible, they would say, as we have it, can't be trusted because it's written well after the events of Christ's life and the copies we have are poorly made. Now, whenever I ask him, can you give me support for that, they can give me no evidence. But it's in their mind, they're convinced. The evidence does not support it. But it fits their secular myth. Thirdly, they believe that until the Enlightenment, the church held science back. You all hear these stories. If you ever watched, it used to be Carl Sagan, now it's Tyson Grassi. They all cite the same stories. Copernicus, Bruno, Galileo. They claim they're rejected because the church would lose control and they do not want scientists to come in because science was a threat to their faith. And that's one of the myths that Chapman debunks in his book. This is an excellent book, by the way. Chapman is a, one of the world-leading experts on what is called the history of science. And he says this whole secular myth is nonsense. And he makes a very, very strong case for it. Anyway, in his book, 
He debunks that theory about Galileo and Bruno and Copernicus. He says in conclusion of refuting this myth, he said, yet all this was quietly overlooked by the anti-Christian myth builders of the 18th and 19th centuries, who ignored Galileo, the biggest wrangler, saw only Galileo, the pitiful old man, confessing before the cardinals. There's a reason that Galileo was disfavored by the church, and it had nothing to do with his view of the the solar system and all that. It had to do because he was an obnoxious, rude jerk. And if you read how he was, that was part of the problem. The evidence is not the problem. But also, the next point is this. Their beliefs of the people who believe the secular myths have blinded them to the weaknesses of their own worldview. They cannot stop back and assess objectively their own worldview because atheistic secularism is cold, it's dead, it's morally bankrupt. Atheism has to steal what values it has from Christianity because it does not have the intellectual foundation to support it. If there is no God, and we are all cosmic freaks of nature as a result of simply time and chance and natural selection, there can be no objective morals, and there can be no purpose for living other than what you might create for yourself. But there's nothing objective, and if you are depressed, so who cares? You don't amount to anything anyway. The other weakness is this. Nobody has ever given answer to the question, how did life begin? We have no scientific evidence whatsoever to be able to make a case for that. The origin and complexity of life has no naturalistic explanation. The specified complex information encoded in every single DNA molecule cannot have spontaneously formed through purposeless, directionless, unguided laws of nature. In one DNA molecule, in my finger, you can't even see it. You need a microscope to see a DNA molecule. There is such complex information, specified complex information, that has to be precise in order to reproduce. You can't even see it. It has enough that would fill my library in one DNA molecule. It's a book. It's the writing of who I am or who you are in one singular molecule. There is no naturalistic explanation for how that can happen. The vast diversity of life cannot be explained by mutation and natural selection. Mutations always are negative. Mutations and natural selection cannot produce new forms of life or new organisms. All they can do is nothing. A Big Bang Theory. A Big Bang. Let's assume that life did begin 13.6 billion years ago. And a big bang came about and created the universe. You still have to ask the question, how can something come out of nothing? You have nothing, and how do you get something? It doesn't work that way. It's not scientific at the very least. And how does a big bang produce order and complexity that life could be able to develop out of that? It's something they aren't willing to look at. But this belief in the progressive art of history is an unfounded ideology. As Chapman says in his book, but it's essential that in the 21st century, Christians learn to engage dynamically and critically with this sleight of hand and force the atheists to face and acknowledge their own slippery intellectual habits. Like it or not, the belief in a transcendent reality has probably done more than any other single concept in history to inspire, focus, and energize the human race. Philosopher and theologian William Lane Craig says of this perceived conflict between science and the Bible, he says, 
What has happened in the last second half of this century is that historians and philosophers of science have come to realize that this supposed history of warfare is a myth. As Thaxton and Percy paired out in their book, the recent book, The Soul of Science, excellent book, by the way, for over 300 years between the rise of modern science in the 1500s and the late 1800s, the relationship between science and religion can best be described as an alliance. Up until the late 19th century, science was, scientists were typically Christian, believers who saw no conflict between science and, and their faith. People like Kepler, Boyle, Maxwell, Faraday, Kelvin. If you know anything about these guys, you can add Newton to this whole list. If you know anything about these guys, these are the big guys in the progress of science. The idea of a warfare between science and religion is a relatively recent invention of the late 19th century, carefully nurtured by secular thinkers who had as their aim the undermining of the cultural dominance of Christianity in the West and its replacement by naturalism. It's a philosophy of worldview that says the view that nothing outside of nature is real and the only way to discover truth is through science. They were remarkably successful in pushing through their agenda, but philosophers of science during the second half of the 20th century have come to realize that the idea of warfare between science and theology is a gross oversimplification. Unfortunately, it hasn't hit our high schools yet and our universities yet, except for the people that actually study these things. The bias that drives many in our society, including our academia, is a myth. It has all the flaws and shortcomings as any other myth. And it taints our ability to see God for who he is or see the Bible for what it is because they already have come to the Bible with a bias that will shape their conclusions. There's a second response to a question, why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? And it says, the New Testament centers on the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Notice what Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3 says. Paul, assuming it's Paul who wrote Hebrews, he says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We learn from this several things. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets. The Old Testament consists of the law and the prophets and the writing consists of 39 books and was the scriptures for the Jewish faith. But notice it says here that God spoke. Judaism and Christianity are both revelatory faiths, meaning we believe that God not, doesn't just exist, but he has spoken, he's communicated himself to man. So to deny the Bible is to deny the essence of both of our faiths, Judaism and Christianity. We learn that Jesus affirms the words of the Old Testament as the word of God. We know that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired, the veritable word of God. He said this, the scriptures cannot be broken in John 10.35. He referred to scripture as the commandment of God in Matthew 15.3 and as the word of God in Mark 7.13. He also indicated that it was indestructible. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished, Matthew 5.18. When dealing with the people of his day, whether it was with the disciples, with re religious rulers, Jesus constantly referred to the Old Testament. He says, have you not read that was spoken to you by God? Matthew 23, 21. Examples could be multiplied to demonstrate that Jesus was conversant with the Old Testament and its content. He quoted from it often, and he trusted it totally. 
If Jesus is now the final ultimate revelation of God, it's important what he thought of the Old Testament. But now, it says, God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. Jesus reveals something that a book, no matter how special or unique, can do. He shows us that God is personal. He wants a relationship with us. He shows the relational side of God. God is in the flesh. God does not only give us truth, but he wants a relationship with us. And the personal work of Jesus is the basis for the Christian faith. Apart from Jesus, there is no faith. He's the foundation of all that we believe. And here's the point I want to drive home. That is, the New Testament is our primary resource for the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, we have the writings of the early church fathers. They go back very, very early, to almost to the time of John the Apostle himself. It goes very, very back. We have writings from Polycarp and Justin Martyr. goes, you know, second, third century back. And we can actually take those writings, we can reproduce the New Testament just based on those works alone. But the New Testament are our primary sources. When you carry a Bible with you, you're carrying one of the most important primary sources that you can have. But the question is, can we trust them? How do we know that the Bible we have is the one that was written by those who had it? And that's our next topic. But before we do that, I want to highlight one other point that I made regarding secularism. Secular humanism rests on the teachings of the Bible. They have had to steal their core values from the Christian faith. Things like the dignity of man comes from the Bible's teaching about that we bear God's image. Love one another is a key theme of the Christian faith. Sexual fidelity in marriage has been one of the Christian moral values throughout his history. Our laws were built around the Ten Commandments. The idea of servant leadership is modeled in the person of Jesus Christ. The responsibility to tell the truth is fundamental to our faith. These are all core values that come from Scripture that have been part of our culture that are foundational to what was once called theistic humanism. But what secular humanism has done is that they have climbed the ladder of Christianity. They have built their philosophy on the premises and the foundation of Christianity, and they have come along and they've kicked it out from underneath them. And the problem is it cannot sustain itself without its foundation. It does not have the intellectual foundation to be able to make the case that they are trying to drive home. There's a third response to our question, why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? And I'm going to argue this case, and I'll be glad to debate it with anybody who would like to debate it. The New Testament is without question the most well-preserved book of ancient history. Nothing even comes remotely close. It's unlike any other book. Now, it's unique. It's unlike any other book. That doesn't make it true, but it certainly merits looking at. The Bible is the most published book in history. Again, nothing comes close. It's the most translated book. There are whole organizations, Wycliffe Ministries and others, that that's all they do is translate in these different cultures. It was written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period that they come from all walks of life, including kings and farmers and fishermen and tax collectors, physicians, Pharisees, shepherds, and poets. And each book was written and supported by men who lived with Jesus. He said each of the New Testament books. One of the criteria for including each of the New Testament books that's, that's in the canon is that it was written either by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle, like the book of Mark or Luke. These men lived and ministered with Jesus. They knew him intimately. As John says in 1 
John 1, 3 to 1 to 3, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. What John is simply saying here, as he says in other passages, look guys, what I'm telling you now, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I touched it. It's not secondhand. It's not some mythology, some God that I've never met and never known. I was with him for that period of time. And the records that we have in the Gospels, in the New Testament, are what they saw and heard. But here's the next issue. It has more and better manuscript evidence than any other ancient book. In your bulletins, you have an insert. Notice the one here, it gives you manuscripts. Now, I could add it to this list. I, I mean, I, I just picked the ones out of it. Look at the one here. It says, uh, Manuscript Support for Ancient Documents. Most of you haven't heard of Pliny the Younger, but he was a well-known Greek uh, philosopher. He wrote 61, 113 AD, and 850 AD. It's basically 750 gaps. We have seven copies of him. Homer. The next closest person with the best manuscript evidence. We have 1,800 of his manuscripts, but the earliest copies we have are 1,100 years after he wrote. Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, Catullus, and yet look at the New Testament. 24,633 manuscripts, and our earliest copies go back within 75 years after they have written. There's one called Papyrus 55, part of the book of Mark. It's a fragment that is probably the oldest one now, probably goes back within 50 years of when it was written. My point is simply this. We have manuscripts. 6,000 of them are Greek manuscripts. Here's P46. I photocopied it for you. All these manuscripts are in museums. They're all documented. There used to be a shelf at our seminary where you could, there was photocopies of all these manuscripts, where they are, the ages of them, the pedigree, and everything else. And here's just an example of one right here. Now, also, regarding that, I put a copy of what's called the Book of John. According to John, this is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I just preached on it last week. But there you go. There's the text that most of your modern translations work off of. But notice there's a line. What is that line for? What is below that line is all the manuscript evidence to support the readings. And they give a rating of A, B, C, or D of how reliable that particular reading is. The variances of those readings, when you add them all together, amount to virtually nothing. In other words, most of the reading variances deal with word orders, spelling, some grammar, because when they used to just write as one constant word like this when you don't have periods of grammar. When they later added grammar to it, it uh, that changed a little bit of it. Somebody would write a note in the margin and it got later added to a text. But we can compare all these manuscripts and we can get extremely precise. In fact, if you take all these differences of any significance whatsoever, it would take one quarter of a page. One quarter of a page. And none of them change any teaching of Christianity whatsoever. Nothing else comes close. If you want to question the reliability of the New Testament text, you have to question all of church, all of history itself. 
nothing comes close in terms of the protections that were there. There are several websites now that you can go on that are fascinating. You go on and there's one in particular called the uh, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. It comes under the umbrella of the Center for Research of Early Christian Documents. All they do is they photograph all these different uh, early works, especially Greek um, New Testament manuscripts. So the images can be preserved, duplicated without deterioration with very precise readings. And anyone can go and you can look at these manuscripts and they don't have them all yet, but they're working toward that end the point I want to make is simply this guys that Bible that we have it's reliable anybody that tells me it's been corrupted and changed by some evil church conspiracy along the way I say where when because I can go back to documents within 100 years 75 years of when it was written and I see no difference in what we have today this morning We responded to the question, why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? We saw that many of the critics that look at the Bible and his claims about Jesus approach it with a bias shaped by our modern secular culture that rejects outright any claim to God or the supernatural. So when we read that Jesus is God, they reject it, regardless of the historical evidence. They will look at the evidence and just discard it outright. Now, most everyone believes that Abraham Lincoln existed and that he shaped the direction of American history. We will believe it because the historical evidence supports it. But we should also believe in Jesus for the same reason. He is an historical person who shaped the direction of history, unlike any other person. He is even today, 2,000 years later, worshipped by 1.4 billion Christians across the world, and Christianity remains the fastest-growing religion throughout most of the world. It's estimated that in China alone, it will have 100 million Christians by the year 2030, even with the persecution they face. The Bible is the basis of all we know and understand who Jesus is. So three things to close with. If we question the existence of Jesus, we must also question all ancient history. Our faith is grounded on a historical person, Jesus, and a historical event, series of events, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Even to this day, you can go to Israel and you can walk the streets that he walked on and sail the seas that he sailed on and visit the cities that he's visited, see the river that he was baptized in, and you can see even where he was crucified and potentially even where he was entombed. You see, one of the problems of our culture is what C.S. Lewis identifies as chronological snobbery. He describes it as this. Chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that claim discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom and where and how conclusively? Or did it just simply merely die away as fashions tend to do? From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are the likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one feels it necessary to defend them. And I think we live in a culture of chronological snobbery. We think, oh, those poor ignorant men of the past, we are so much smarter than them. We have science now. We have reason. They didn't have that stuff back then. It's a myth. Now, many of us read a certain passage of scripture and we say that's so regressive and so offensive 
but we ought to entertain the idea that maybe we feel that way because in our particular culture, that text is a problem. In other cultures, that passage might not come across as regressive or offensive. Let's take a look at one example. In individualistic Western societies, we read the Bible and we have a problem with what it says about sex. But when we read what the Bible says about forgiveness, forgive your enemy, forgive your brother 70 times 7, turn the other cheek, when your enemy asks for your shirt, give him the cloak as well, and we say, well, how wonderful. It's because we're driven by our culture of guilt. But if you were to go to the Middle East, they would think that what the Bible has to say about sex is pretty good. Actually, they might feel it's not strict enough. But when they would read the Bible says about forgiving your enemies, it would strike them absolutely crazy. It's because their culture is not an individual society like ours. It's a more of a shame culture than a guilt culture. So let me ask you a question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everyone else's? Why should we get rid of the Bible because it offends your culture? Let's do a thought experiment for a second. If the Bible really was the revelation of God and therefore it wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Therefore, if it's really from God, wouldn't it have to offend your cultural sensibilities at some point? Therefore, when you read the Bible and you find some part of it outrageous and offensive, that's proof that it's probably true, that it's probably from God. It's not a reason to say the Bible isn't God's word. It's a reason to say that it is. What makes you think that because this part or that part of God's word is offensive, you can forget Christianity altogether? And that's what we do. We throw the baby out with the bathwater because I'm offended by what that particular passage says. Well, maybe what we need to do is say, maybe God's got something to tell me here, and we need to listen.